Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following episode includes discussions of trauma that some listeners may find distressing. Please exercise caution for children under 13. Gaucher, Mississippi. January 1974. Noon. Charlie Hickson stalked through the grove, shotgun held at the ready. It was a 1100 series Remington automatic that his eldest son Eddie had given to him for Father's Day. The weapon was a reassuring weight in his hands as he scanned the forest for game. He stopped in the middle of the woods for a lunch break. So far, this hunting excursion had been unsuccessful. He unpacked his lunch, quickly polished off his sandwich, and was just chasing it down with an orange when he noticed something strange. Everything around him was still. No birds, no squirrels, no insects. Still and quiet. His eyes cast all around the grove, looking for some sign of movement among the trees. Nothing. It was almost like the world around him was frozen in place. And then his eyes caught something familiar, a silver shape. It was the same alien craft he had seen in October. The blue lights were off, and it was partially concealed by the trees, but he was certain it was identical. A moment later, a message flicked across his mind. We mean you no harm. We mean no one any harm. You may communicate with us later. You have endured. You have been chosen. There is no need for fear. We will communicate again. And just like that, the craft was gone. Charlie sat there, stunned, his shotgun lying across his lap. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. 
Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered thousands, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Today, we're finishing our story on the Pascagoula abduction. On October 11, 1973, Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker went fishing just after work, only to be abducted by a football-shaped craft. After the media frenzy died down, both attempted to live normal lives with middling success. Last week, we followed Charlie and Calvin's supposed abduction and the media firestorm it created on local and national levels. This week, we'll examine their lives following the encounter and see if we can shed light on what really happened that night in October. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. You can find all previous episodes of Extraterrestrial as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. On October 11, 1973, Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker, two workers at the F.B. Walker & Sons shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi, experienced a strange and traumatic event. They arrived at the sheriff's office later that night, claiming they were abducted by outlandish alien creatures who could read their minds. They were interrogated by the sheriff, UFO experts, and a team of intelligence personnel from Keesler Air Force Base. But neither of them changed their stories, even when left alone in the sheriff's office with a hidden tape recorder. In the months following the encounter, the Pascagoula Sheriff's Department was finally able to bring a polygraph operator to test the two would-be abductees. Both men passed the test. Charlie Hickson gave interviews freely and openly to TV stations, reporters, and concerned citizens alike, sometimes dragging Calvin Parker along with him. Calvin, on the other hand, possessed none of his companion's interest in publicity. Calvin intended to live a mellow life away from the public eye. In early 1974, he signed up with the Marine Corps and left Mississippi for basic training. Joining the Marines was the perfect escape from the ridicule he experienced back home. The sheer amount of public attention had started to take a toll on Charlie as well. By the time January of 1974 rolled around, Charlie needed a break from the limelight. A lifelong fan of hunting, he knew just the solution. He would go on a solo hunting trip in a tree farm near their home in Gaucher, Mississippi. Charlie's wife, Blanche, was initially hesitant to let Charlie wander through the woods alone all day, but eventually she let him go. He promised her he'd bring back some squirrels for her to make squirrel stew with. Charlie returned that evening without any squirrels. 
He told Blanche that he had seen the alien craft in the trees, the same one that had abducted him and Calvin. He claimed that this time, the encounter came with a feeling of contentment. All his stress regarding the incident had evaporated, and he no longer feared contact with the aliens. Their promise to return was almost comforting. The next month, Calvin was awakened late at night by the sound of a dog barking outside their apartment. Not wanting to wake Blanche, he stepped out to investigate. Sure enough, there was a stray dog in the alley between their apartment and the woods beyond. He approached it, ready to chase it off. But then, without even looking in his direction, it ran off, as if spooked by something other than Charlie. A moment later, he heard the voice in his head once again. The same voice from the tree farm and Pascagoula before that. He described the sensation as having a radio switched on inside my head. This time it said, you must tell the world we mean no harm. Your world needs help. We will help in the future before it's too late. You're not prepared to understand yet. We will return again soon. Charlie looked around, but this time didn't see any sign of the craft or the beings he had seen by the Pascagoula River. Head throbbing, he went back inside. As far as we know, Charlie did not go in for a medical exam of any kind immediately after these encounters. When asked, he insisted they couldn't have been dreams or hallucinations. He was wide awake the whole time. But he had no evidence or even any other eyewitnesses to confirm either this story or his encounter at the tree farm. Though this would not be true of his next alien encounter. The evening of May 12, 1974, the Hickson family drove back from a Mother's Day gathering in Sandersville, Mississippi. The vehicle was at full capacity. Charlie's daughter, Sheila, her husband, Kenny, their baby, and Kenny's brother, Ernest, sat in the front seats. Charlie, Blanche, and their two youngest children sat in the back. Kenny drove. The first one to notice something strange as they drove along Highway 67 was Charlie's 12-year-old son, Kurt, who watched a star in the sky that seemed just a little brighter than all the others. Soon, this bright light caught Charlie's eye as well. Above the tree line, he could see it circling through the air. He could hardly believe what he was seeing. As he stared, it grew bigger, closer, and soon everyone in the car was looking at it too. He noticed it was much bigger than the craft he had seen at Pascagoula and the tree farm. Then he realized it was heading right for the highway in front of them. It flew above the car, keeping pace with him. Charlie, thrilled that they were driving almost parallel to it, told Kenny to pull over. Then the object dropped to ground level and passed across the highway in front of them. Kenny slammed on the brakes, afraid they were going to hit the craft. The light glided out of their way and came to a stop by the far side of the road, hovering silently. The Hickson family car had come to a complete halt. The entire family stared in wonder, except Blanche, who was so terrified, she buried her face in her hands. Charlie gaped in wonder and excitement. 
This was the moment he had been waiting for, a chance to meet the mysterious beings who had contacted him on so many occasions. He opened his side door. This little gesture broke the family out of their stupor. Blanche grabbed a hold of Charlie and pulled him back into the car. Charlie protested, shouting that he had to meet them. His terrified family pleaded with him to not go. This struggle lasted only for a moment. The radio in Charlie's head switched on. He heard that familiar voice again. Go. There will be another time, another place. Charlie finally stopped fighting and sat back down, disheartened. Charlie closed his door and they sped off into the night. The Hickson family was utterly stunned by what they had just seen. Kenny insisted they pull over and call someone. They had all seen the same thing. They needed to report it. He found a payphone and called the closest government facility he could think of, Keesler Air Force Base. Charlie almost laughed. He knew exactly what they would say. He had been through the same ordeal only eight months earlier. Sure enough, Kenny came back to report that the person on duty had told him, we don't handle that kind of thing anymore. They recommended Kenny report this to local law enforcement, then hung up. The Hicksons did not report this encounter, likely due to Charlie's prior experience with media scrutiny. The encounter on Mother's Day is by far the most credible of Charlie Hickson's repeat encounters. Unlike his experiences at the tree farm or outside his house, there were four other witnesses to corroborate what he saw. Kenny, Kurt, and Sheila all verified the appearance of the craft in separate interviews. His wife Blanche could only verify what it looked like in the sky because she had covered her eyes in fright once the craft got near the highway. Finally, Charlie had someone else besides Calvin to verify one of his alien encounters. But in actuality, the Hicksons were not the only people in Mississippi to report a UFO sighting that year. At around this time, more citizens of Mississippi were coming forward with their own stories of strange, inexplicable phenomena. Among the first was Charles Delk, a constable in Petal, Mississippi. He saw something on October 7, 1973, something that he would never forget. Next, we'll follow Charles Delk as he encounters a UFO. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now, back to the story. 
On October 7, 1973, Sheriff Charles Delk became the third person in Mississippi to witness a UFO that month. Around 8.15 p.m., Delk was watching Colombo when he received a call from the sheriff's dispatcher. The dispatcher told him to investigate a complaint from a local woman about a strange flying object with blue and green flashing lights. Thinking she was obviously crazy, Delk declined to investigate. A few minutes later, the dispatcher called back, saying the woman sounded extremely distressed. Reluctantly, Delk drove out to the woman's house where he found nothing out of the ordinary. After reassuring the woman that they'd do everything in their power to follow up on this disturbance, he got back in his car and started driving back. He had not gone far when something above the trees caught his eye. It was a large object traveling through the air at around 25 miles an hour. It was shaped like a top and lined with yellow lights. Delk radioed the dispatcher and reported that he had the object in sight and was following closely beside it. He followed it for about five miles until it stopped over what Delk described as a power station of some kind. With a hiss that sounded like escaping air, two jets of flame shot out from the sides of the craft. Then Delk's car and all of his electrical equipment went dead. He watched the UFO glide toward the horizon, unable to pursue. After 15 minutes had passed, his car came back to life. He immediately jumped in and followed the slow-moving UFO, which was almost out of sight by this point. Delk pursued the craft until, without any warning, it vanished before his eyes. This encounter bears almost no similarities to the one experienced by Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker that week, but the relative closeness in time and proximity beg a comparison. Petal, Mississippi is approximately 80 miles north of Pascagoula and the yellow lights surrounding the ship are similar to what Charlie's family would see on Mother's Day the next spring. Another story came to light in August of 1974, a few months after Charlie's Mother's Day encounter. A man named Larry Booth claimed to have seen a UFO in Pascagoula on the night of October 11th the previous year. He had seen a large craft hovering outside his house, only this one had red lights rather than yellow or blue. Booth was an Air Corps veteran, so it's unlikely that he misidentified a military aircraft. If what he saw was a terrestrial vehicle, it would have to have been a very new and experimental model. As the story surfaced, a man named William Mendez reached out to Charlie about writing a comprehensive account of the Pascagoula abduction. Mendez was a skeptic, but found Charlie's story intriguing. To help convince Mendez and provide additional material for the book, Charlie consented to being put under hypnosis to relive his experiences. Mendez hired an experienced hypnotherapist named John Krauss to conduct the sessions from late 1974 through 1976. Krauss's strategy was to use time regression to bring Charlie back to the moment of his abduction where he could relive it in real time. This was the same technique UFO expert Dr. Hynek attempted a year earlier to no result. Unlike the session with Dr. Hynek, Charlie didn't have an immediate traumatic reaction to the hypnosis. Mendez described these sessions as remarkably successful in illuminating Charlie's emotional state during the abduction. 
Krauss took Charlie back to the bank of the Pascagoula River on the night of October 11th. Charlie was shocked and then froze up as he saw the aliens appearing all over again. When he recalled losing sight of Calvin, he panicked, saying he wanted to see his friends and family again, praying that these creatures wouldn't kill him. Krauss attempted to calm him down, asking him to describe what he saw around him. Charlie confirmed his original description of the craft, as well as the moments immediately after the abduction. However, during these sessions, a few inconsistencies slipped into the story. When hypnotized, Charlie claimed to receive the telepathic messages much earlier than in his original written account. In his original telling, he claimed to receive the message right as the ship departed. This time, he said he heard it while inside the ship. Krauss next made him recall his UFO encounters from early 1974. When Charlie relived the encounter in the tree farm, he said that the telepathic message told him, do not be afraid, we mean you no harm. He made no mention of the rest of the message he described previously, where the aliens told him, you have been chosen. Krauss then brought him to his encounter in the alleyway beside his apartment. When asked to repeat the alien's message, Charlie just said, I can't, over and over again. Was this an indication that the alien messages were difficult to translate? Or was it a sign that Charlie's stories of receiving telepathic alien messages were all made up? These discrepancies cast doubt on Charlie's character, so Mendez and Krauss sought out Calvin Parker to see if they could hypnotize him next. Contacting Calvin proved difficult. He had left the state to join the Marine Corps, so he wasn't even in Mississippi in August of 1974. But his absence wouldn't last long. Shortly after completing his basic training, the now 20-year-old Calvin had been discharged. When asked why, he claimed he beat up a fellow soldier but wouldn't elaborate. In other interviews, he mentioned being discharged due to nerves. This is unsurprising, since he had two emotional breakdowns after the abduction. He always seemed to struggle with the encounter much more than Charlie did. When he returned from basic training, Charlie contacted him, and after some persuading, Calvin consented to hypnosis. Calvin hadn't spoken with Charlie for some time. The two of them, now living over a hundred miles apart, saw very little of each other. Calvin was polite but wary. He still wasn't sold on the idea of hypnosis. He was doing this more as a favor to his old friend than out of a genuine interest in reliving the event. When Calvin went under, Krauss told him to view the experience distantly, as if watching a movie. This would protect him from having another traumatic episode while reliving the abduction. The session took him through his encounter where he confirmed everything Charlie had said, to a point. What they saw in their separate examination rooms was quite dissimilar. While Charlie was examined by a floating crystalline eyeball, Calvin was examined by a small device and a five-foot alien that he described as a female. For the first time, Calvin mentioned being probed by this female alien, but would not offer any more details. Soon after Calvin's sessions on January 31st, 1976, 
both men were subjected to a psychological evaluation by Dr. Bernard A. Bast. This evaluation was intended to discover whether either of them suffered from mental illness or brain damage that could account for their shared experience. Dr. Bast's findings didn't reveal any shocking twists or developments. Both Calvin and Charlie were found to be mentally healthy men of average intelligence. Neither was found to have significant predispositions towards hallucinating, nor were they found to be particularly creative. After many years of interviews, edits, and revisions, Charlie's book was published in 1983. It contains detailed information and interviews about the Pascagoula abduction and all of his subsequent encounters in 1974. Throughout the book, Mendez positions himself as an investigator trying to find the truth amidst the sensationalism and wild speculation. Despite this, it's a fairly one-sided account, mostly concerned with Charlie's perspective and not that of his younger companion. The book contains the only written account of Charlie's additional alien encounters, which remain the most questionable parts of his story. The tree farm incident in particular is cause for some skepticism. Even Mendez was dubious about this story. After having Charlie hypnotized, he grew to believe that the whole tree farm incident was a hallucination caused by stress. Factors like the chosen one message, the alien craft appearing and disappearing without even a noise, and the fact that Charlie was the only one to witness this are all highly suspect. As we mentioned earlier, the Mother's Day incident is the most credible of these encounters. This sighting was witnessed by five people, all of whom agree on the details. And yet, while Mendez's interviews with the Hickson family certainly are compelling, their family ties to Charlie make their accounts questionable. It's definitely possible that they simply could be humoring the patriarch of their family after he had a dream or hallucination on the road. It also doesn't help that they didn't report the sighting to law enforcement. For a long time, Charlie seemed to be the only one to experience repeated visitations. Then, in 1996, Calvin experienced something he couldn't explain. Calvin, now 39 years old, was out fishing in the waters near Cat Island off the southern coast of Mississippi. He packed several water bottles and a sandwich, planning to spend the entire day on the water. As he sat in his boat with his line in the water, something incredible happened. All of a sudden, it was dark. He checked his watch. It read 11 o'clock. It was as if the entire day had gone by in an instant. After rowing home and catching some sleep, he inspected the fishing boat the next day. His sandwich and water bottles were gone. His cooler, on the other hand, was full of fish. Fish he did not remember catching. While there are obviously many potential non-extraterrestrial explanations for this occurrence, Calvin seemed convinced it was the aliens still watching him, causing him to lose time. He did his best to stay off the grid for the next 20 years, making sure no one besides his immediate family even knew where he lived. He only saw Charlie one more time when aging UFO abductee Betty Hill invited them to visit her on her deathbed. Her abduction, alongside her husband Barney, was the first widely publicized alien abduction in the United States back in 1961. She met Charlie and Calvin shortly after their abduction. 
A black and white photo taken in 1974 shows the three of them standing in her backyard. The story of the deathbed visit only appears in Calvin's book, without a date attached, so it's difficult to verify whether it actually happened. If it did, this must have been early 2004, as Betty Hill died in October of that year. Calvin claimed he tried to bring up his blackout to Charlie on the trip home, but Charlie didn't want to talk about it. Frustrated by his friend's sudden unwillingness to broach the subject of return visits, Calvin promised himself that this was the last time he would travel anywhere with Charlie. Unfortunately, they wouldn't have much more time together regardless. Calvin was shocked when, in mid-September 2011, he found a reporter knocking at his door. The man had looked him up through the local school board. Calvin told him he wasn't talking to reporters anymore. Then the reporter told him why he'd tracked him down. Charlie Hickson had died of a heart attack a few days earlier on September 9th. He was 80 years old. The reporter wanted a comment. Charlie spent many of his twilight years attending UFO conventions and telling his story to anyone who would listen. He never moved out of southern Mississippi and, as far as we can tell, never spoke about any additional encounters with the strange telepathic aliens. Seven years later, in 2018, Calvin published his own book entitled Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter. He was finally doing what Charlie had been pushing him to do all along, opening up about his experience. Now 65, Calvin finally chose to step back into the public eye. He appeared on radio shows, local television, and podcasts to promote the book. The publicity led to something he didn't expect. A handful of new witnesses reached out with their own stories from that night all the way back in 1973. Next, we'll learn about these newly revealed sightings and decide whether they hold merit. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. After the release of UFO abductee Calvin Parker's new book in 2018, a handful of Mississippi residents came forward with their own stories from October 11th, 1973. Maria and Jerry Blair, a couple from Alabama, claimed to be in Pascagoula at the time of the famous sighting. On the night of October 11th, 1973, they were sitting in the parking lot of Graham's Seafood, just across the river from where Calvin and Charlie were fishing. They were waiting for a ferry to carry them across the river. 
Maria saw something glimmer out of the corner of her eye, and looking up, she saw a pair of blue lights descend from the sky onto the Pascagoula River. She watched the lights for about 20 minutes before they disappeared. As they loaded their belongings into the ferry moments later, Maria heard a loud splash. She looked over the side of the pier and saw something that looked like a person sinking beneath the water. Whatever it was, it did not resurface. She thought it must be someone in diving gear. Jerry told her it was probably a dolphin. Over the next few days, she heard stories about Calvin and Charlie's sighting. Then, when she saw the first illustration of the creatures that had taken them, she realized what she had seen that night. One of the aliens was in the river. Next, a woman named Judy Branning claimed she also saw something strange on the night of the abduction. She and three friends were stuck at a traffic light when they saw some bright lights in the distance. At first, they thought it was a plane. As it passed over them, their radio started going haywire, scanning through all of the stations wildly. Then, a moment later, the car went dead. The lights ahead took off faster than any aircraft Judy had ever seen. Judy claimed that when they saw the scrutiny Calvin and Charlie went through, she and her three friends agreed to never talk about what they saw. But in 2019, she said of Calvin and Charlie's experience, the story is very true. That's what has bothered me for 45 years. The trustworthiness of these witnesses is disputable since the details surrounding the abduction were public for decades before they came forward. It's highly possible that these new stories are either exaggerated or completely made up to capitalize on the renewed craze surrounding this alien encounter. Regardless, the book proved so popular that on June 22, 2019, the city council erected a historical marker on the banks of the Pascagoula River where Calvin and Charlie claimed to have been abducted. Both Calvin and Charles Hickson Jr. were present for the unveiling. Calvin was overwhelmed, saying, I wish that when I died, I could be buried right here underneath this plaque. It seems that Calvin Parker, after years of trying to keep this incident from defining his life, made peace with his own fame. Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker's experience in October 1973 is considered by many to be one of the most credible UFO abductions ever recorded. The main reason for this is the two witnesses themselves. Though the UFO left no tangible evidence, the fact that these two unassuming working-class men saw the same bizarre aliens makes the story tremendously compelling. And listening to Sheriff Fred Diamond's hidden tape, both men sound genuinely afraid and in awe of what they supposedly witnessed. The amount of planning and acting expertise that would be required to pull off this kind of hoax seems outside their capability. The outlandish descriptions of the aliens would have to have been agreed on beforehand, as well as their separate emotion-fueled reactions to the incident. Calvin Parker would have had to fake two emotional breakdowns, as well as deliberately get himself thrown out of the Marine Corps to keep up the ruse. Most tend to agree with Dr. J. Allen Hynek's assessment that they did experience something real and traumatic, but what that something was is still questionable. 
Some maintain that the two men were just lying through their teeth this whole time. Noted UFO skeptic Philip J. Class stated that Charlie's story was riddled with discrepancies and claimed that the man who administered the polygraph test was an inexperienced operator. While we can't make a judgment on the experience of a polygraph operator from almost 50 years ago, the inconsistencies in the story are impossible to ignore. Until his dying day, Charlie Hickson was the kind of man who relished the chance to tell a good story. Several of Charlie's retellings feel riddled with dramatic license. While Class's accusation was based on Charlie's oral accounts before his book was published, even Charlie's written accounts of the event are fairly inconsistent and feel self-aggrandizing. The first chapter of Charlie's book contains an account of October 11th, supposedly written in the immediate aftermath of the abduction. This account is weirdly unfocused, spending many pages describing Calvin's experience in the Korean War, which seemed only tangentially related to the story he was supposed to be telling. By all accounts, Charlie was very fond of telling war stories before the abduction. Is it possible that he made up this story to revitalize his own hero narrative? His second visitation from the aliens seems to track with this theory as it concluded with the aliens telling him that he had been chosen for some kind of grand purpose that, as far as we know, was never fulfilled. The telepathic messages are some of the least believable aspects of the story. In the transcripts of their initial interviews, neither Charlie nor Calvin mention telepathic messages from the aliens. Charlie claimed this was because he didn't recognize what they were until much later. Perhaps in his traumatized state, Charlie dismissed the messages as his scared brain trying to reassure him but it does seem more likely that these messages were something he added to the story to give it more drama. Calvin did not back up Charlie's description of the alien communication until his press tour in 2018. During their initial press appearances, Charlie did most of the talking, and Calvin claimed that he passed out as soon as the alien drones grabbed him. Calvin fainting before they were brought on the ship was a key part of the story until 2018, when Calvin claimed that he was conscious throughout the abduction, just like Charlie. Calvin says that the lie was Charlie's idea, a way of protecting him from the majority of the ridicule they'd receive. This is very convenient, as it allows Calvin to capitalize on the new stories in his book without dishonoring Charlie's memory. And yet, it's hard to discredit the story entirely due to Calvin's behavior over the last 45 years. Until 2018, Calvin only spoke out about the experience when absolutely necessary. Despite having ample opportunity to discredit his friend's account, Calvin never did. And when he finally opened up about the encounter, he doubled down on their original story from 1973. And when it came to his own subsequent experiences, he was less certain than Charlie. The moment when he lost a whole day in 1996 is presented in his book without conjecture or speculation, simply as a thing that happened that could indicate a return visit, but could also be just some kind of medically explicable blackout. 
The book thus comes across as a sincere retelling, especially since it comes after 45 years of quietly avoiding the spotlight. So what actually happened that night in Pascagoula? If we take Dr. Hynek's stance that the two men saw something that wasn't necessarily a UFO, there are a number of possibilities. Some have floated the idea of hallucinogenic drugs or alcohol, but this is impossible to verify. Both men appeared lucid when they went into Sheriff Diamond's office. Their family and friends confirmed they did not take recreational drugs. Charlie did drink whiskey to calm his nerves immediately after the encounter, but neither he nor Calvin were known to drink to excess. If not drugs or alcohol, then the symptoms Charlie and later Calvin described could be attributed to sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis is a phenomenon where a person wakes up from deep sleep without regaining full control of their motor functions. During these periods of paralysis, the part of the brain that's still asleep keeps dreaming, creating vivid and often terrifying hallucinations. Strange, incomprehensible figures and a sensation of floating are known symptoms of sleep paralysis. Both men described floating as they were led toward the ship's opening, and of course, the aliens sound like the type of figure one might witness in this state. However, it's extremely unlikely that the two men fell asleep and experienced sleep paralysis at the same time, and it would be very unlikely that they would both have the same hallucination. That being said, there is a precedent for shared hallucination. It is a psychological phenomenon known as folie à deux, or folly of two, also known as shared psychotic disorder. It occurs when symptoms and sometimes hallucinations are shared between multiple people. Folie à deux most often involves a more dominant personality, or inducer, forming a delusional belief that they then pass on to a second person who is more malleable. If Charlie was the inducer in this instance and convinced the younger and more unsure Calvin that they had encountered an alien ship, it's definitely possible that the Pascagoula abduction was an instance of folie à deux. But there's no definite answer to what would have caused Charlie's delusion or what he hoped to gain from faking an alien encounter. It's easier to explain away the claims made by the other witnesses who have only recently come forward. These claims seem to be instances of the bandwagon effect. Many of the witnesses may have seen planes flying low overhead or animals swimming in a river late at night and then let Calvin and Charlie's story shape their memory into a UFO sighting. Or they just made their stories up. The fact that these eyewitness accounts came so late does not make them seem particularly trustworthy. With the circumstances involved, we'll have to rate the Pascagoula abduction as a four out of 10 on the believability scale. In the end, we agree with Dr. Hynek's assessment. These men saw something that distressed them deeply, but were not certain it was an alien craft. Their reticence to talk to the press, as well as Calvin's 45-year silence, indicate a pair of men who did not do this for the fame, but felt obligated to share what they thought they saw. If this was a shared delusion induced by Charlie, we'll never know for sure. But his family continues to share his story alongside Calvin, and their belief in what they saw is perhaps the strongest evidence we have that there was an alien encounter in Mississippi in the early 1970s. 
Ultimately, all that remains of the Pascagoula abduction is a handful of aging eyewitnesses and a plaque by the side of the river. Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. For more information on the Pascagoula abduction, amongst the many sources we used, we found UFO Contact at Pascagoula by Charles Hickson and William Mendez and Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, My Story by Calvin Parker, extremely helpful in our research. You can find all previous episodes of Extraterrestrial as well as Parcast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Extraterrestrial is written by Robert Teamstra and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson.